your own. Wow. Wow, we're growing up in the Lord in here. That's great. We are studying Christian evidences still, and we started into a discussion last time about the different evidences for Christ's resurrection as the linchpin of all things Christian. I mean, if this is true, then it's all true. If this isn't true, then none of it's true. The resurrection of Jesus is that important. And we talked about some of their theories. Remember, we talked about the the disciples stole the body, the Jewish officials stole the body, and the swoon theory that he just passed out and then wasn't really dead, and all of that. And you can kind of see through. All those are pretty thin, pretty thin explanations as to um, how Christ could still be dead. So today we're going to transition into evidences of the resurrection and focus on the significance of the third day. And so we're going to move into that. Now, I have a lot of scriptures this time, so I need a lot of volunteers to help out. So let's get to it. Who will take Matthew 28, 1 through 7? I, I can't, I'm going to have to be doing this. I've got to get my bifocals. Um, thank you, Don. Uh, Mark 16, 1 through 7. Okay. Uh, Luke 24, 1 through 7. They're all 1 through 7s. That's easy to remember. Okay. Frank will get you there. And then um, Courtney, John 20, 1 through 7. Isn't that amazing? Matthew 28, 1 through 7. Mark 16, 1 through 7. Luke 24, 1 through 7. And John 20, 1 through 7. All right. Matthew 20, verse 19. Um, since you're already there, just stay there, Courtney, and I'll have you read when you get to that point, um, verse 19 of that chapter, okay? Yeah. You're going to first read 1 through 7, and then later on you'll read verse 19. Uh, someone, John 3, 14. John, over here you had your hand up. Uh, why don't you do John 8, 28? John 8, 28. And then I'll give you John 12, 32 through 33. 32 through 33, Yes. Luke 4, 28 through 30. Mario? Um, John 5, 18. Would you take that one? And then I'm going to have a, if you don't mind keeping your Bible open there, I'm, I've got a string of verses in, in a few within a few chapters of each other right there near John 5. So we'll have a John 7, we'll have a John 8, John 10, John... So if you don't mind staying there, I'll just call them out and give you a minute to find them and read them when we get there, okay? And we'll assign out the rest when we get there, because that's quite a few. So in our study, we've already established that the tomb was found to be empty on the third day after Christ's death, the first day of the week, John, uh, Matthew 28, 1 through 7. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, 
is going before you to Galilee, there you will see him. See, I have told you. Mark 16, 1 through 7. Luke 24, 1 through 7. And John 21 through 7. Thank you. All right. The emphasis that we wanted to make on all of these is that in all four gospel accounts, first of all, the resurrection is, and the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus are given the most attention in all four gospel accounts. Why? Well, that's what it's all about. That's the essential, essential aspect of Christ's sacrifice, of his ministry for us. But in each of those accounts, Extra care is made to emphasize that he was resurrected on the first day of the week. And it, it, there is something powerfully special about the first day of the week. And we'll get to that in this, in this text, in this lesson that we're talking about today. And that's, that's important because there have been some 
de-emphasis in the religious world on the first day of the week. You know, there are churches now that, you know, you have an optional Saturday service instead of a Sunday service, or some of them, you know, you have services throughout the week, and it's kind of pick and choose, and there's less and less emphasis. And, and I think that goes along with a lot of different things that have less and less emphasis than before. A couple of things, I mean, we, we can be all things to all men. There are certain things we can change that are just our traditions or just the way that we have felt comfortable doing things. The Bible gives us latitude in some areas. We cannot change the truth. We cannot change the doctrine. And there, there are some procedural things that are important because they're core to the way God wanted things done. And one of those is the first day of the week. Another one, by the way, is preaching. There's less and less emphasis. Now, this may seem self-serving that I'm saying this because I'm a preacher. But it, I'm not saying it because I'm a preacher. I'm a preacher because I believe this, if you understand what I mean. Preaching has always been God's method of communicating His will to mankind. Always. Now, you might think that the Bible is... God's, and that is, it's the inspired thing that's preached, right? But go ye therefore into all the world and give them Bibles. Is that what it says? Go ye therefore into all the world and preach the gospel. And then, how shall they hear without a Bible? Is that what it says? No. How shall they hear without a preacher? I, I don't remember who it was, but one of the early Campbell or Stone or John Raccoon Smith, or one of the early uh, restoration leaders, made the statement that it's beautiful that God chose to communicate his infallible word through fallible human personality. And that when those two things come together with sincerity, they have a supernatural impact and effect. Preaching has always been, because it's the relational aspect of it, right? Preaching has, is, is, is a way, we need things explained to us. I need things explained to me in Scripture. We, it, it's the divine will of, of God. And so God's plan has always been that His Word be communicated through preaching. And that's evident all throughout the New Testament. I mean, and the Old Testament, His prophets, they, they were preachers. There is a, a movement in the religious world that de-emphasizes that. There are many, 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 many big community churches that have 10 minutes of preaching and an hour and a half of music. Well, I, I, well the music that's often done there, I couldn't participate in. But as far as music, I mean, we have music, we have singing, praising God. But to... That, that emphasis says, no, music's more important. It's not. Even prayer in the assembly isn't more important. Now, it's important, but it's not more important. And I've heard people talk about communion being the most important thing. Communion is vitally important, and we need to have that every first day of the week. But to imply that these other things aren't as essential Preaching is absolutely transformative and essential. I mean, if it's done well. 
and so I, I, I don't know why I got off on that. That's not really in our lesson plan today. But we're talking about churches that are de-emphasizing the first day of the week. I, I think that's dangerous. I think it's problematic. And it just kind of segued in my mind into this other thing that I think is very, very, very... Now, granted, that doesn't necessarily mean we need to go back to hour-long or two-hour-long sermons. I, I, get, I struggle with those as well. But to de-emphasize preaching, to... I have a, um, a friend down south who we, we've been good friends since I preached down there. We worked together at one time. And he called me recently and was very distraught because he had, he's a college minister and he's been teaching the college class. And in his teaching, he was pulled aside by the elders and said, we just think you use a little too much Bible. Mm. Now, you might be tempted to think this congregation he works with is like some of the ones we've been familiar with that are very far on the left end of the spectrum. This church is not. This church is not a, quote, liberal church. It's just a church that some of the college kids and parents of the college kids had complained about not enough life application, not enough, you know, and you, you know I'm all about life application. But what I would never do is say, more life application, less Bible. How about keep the, the Bible and it maybe add a little more life application? But do you see that? You see how that's just kind of missing the forest for the trees? And forgetting what's the most important thing? And so I, I just I wanted to comment on it because it just seems important. Comments, thoughts? Done. Well, I'm going to address some of those things, um, and I want to wait and to address the angel part. But some of the stuff, the earthquake, the sky turning dark, there's some historical, extra-biblical evidence for as well, and which we'll get to in that section. So, yeah, those are on our radar, and we're going to address it. There's also a little bit of question about three days versus three days and three nights. Um, that one... I've actually heard brought up here, even here, with um, members confused about that. So we're going to address that too. Because if you're crucified on Friday and you're resurrected on Sunday, that's three days. But it's not three nights. And, and, but some of it has to do with how Jews counted days versus how the Western world. I mean, we inherited the Roman calendar, right? The Western calendar, the Greek calendar. And they... The Jews don't see it that way. Their day doesn't begin at midnight. Does it? When does their day begin? Sundown, which would be 6 p.m. Right. So, so it wraps 6 p.m. to 6 p.m. That's a day. Well, that is a totally different way of thinking for us. Right? So we, we would it'd be very, very different. So we'll address some of those. Thank you, Don, for bringing them up.
Yes. That's why we're Yeah, that's why we're gonna gonna address it. Huh? I got two weeks. This will probably be our last lesson. Take us three weeks to do it. Any other comments, thoughts? Okay. We're moving on. Yes, Ron. That's true. So even if there were things that we cannot harmonize with the Gospels in our own minds because we maybe have a lack of information, it still doesn't alter the fact that they're all saying the same thing that Jesus rose in the first week. Right. They're all teaching the same basic historical facts. Right. And, and that's, that's certainly an important argument is that when you get into the detail, there, I, I, st- I took a course in school that just addressed all of the supposed attacks that would be used by skeptics. And there are a lot of little things like this. Like you look in Chronicles and Kings and they'll say, you know, unimportant details like the columns were this high and the other one talks about those same columns being a different height. And I see brethren who go to excruciating efforts to try to reconcile those numbers. You do realize our Bible has been hand copied by human beings like thousands and thousands and thousands of times. I would not ever argue that there are no discrepancy errors because of human error, copying. My argument would always be that the originals were absolutely perfect and without any flaw or error. But what I would also argue is that God in his providence has protected the overall message because none of those things they point out or of significant theological or doctrinal difference, right? The height of the column has nothing to do with going to heaven or serving the Lord or pleasing the Lord, correct? And whether it's three days and three nights, if we wanted to, now there are some other arguments we can make on that, we will, but three days and three nights or two nights and three days or whatever, does that make any whatsoever difference as to whether or not Jesus is resurrected? Well, it does, perhaps, if you're making the argument that the ink, like some of these, what's a nice word? Uneducated and ignorant people, preachers that I hear online, um, particularly of the King James only persuasion, and it's funny that I'm talking about this because y'all know what my preference of Bible is. I've talked about this so many times. I'm a new King James guy and I argue for it all day. But what you do not hear me argue is that in some way that is inspired or that is perfect or that is better in every way than every other because I would have to be a person who just did not know history or denied it, deny absolute fact. I mean... Oh, no, 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 no. Anybody ever seen an original or translated in the original verbiage? It's like a different language. 
English. It's like, did you ever have to read Beowulf in school? That's written in Old English. Is it easy to read? I didn't understand any of it. Except that there's Grendel, who's like a dragonish thing, and Beowulf kills it. I mean, that's what I got out of the thing. Because you can't understand it. And in 1611, the English language, if you could be transported back to 1611, you wouldn't be able to speak to people. Yeah, yeah, I know. You wouldn't be able to understand them, and they would not be able to understand you. I mean, it's, it's a totally different deal. So, what, did, did everybody kind of get the gist of what we're talking about here? We have, not tried to, we have not tried to arm you with the ability to argue something that is not reasonably true, which is that every word in your English... Your English Bible isn't even the Bible. Not what it was, right? It's a translation, of that, and those were copies of copies of copies of copies of copies. We have to be able to deal with that because that's the facts. So we have to be able to deal with that. So, you know, what we don't want to do is argue something that we know isn't the case. All right, any last comments, thoughts before we move on to this? Okay, so the significance of the first day of the week. This historical fact offers several points of evidence for the resurrection. Number one, the manner of his death and resurrection on the third day were foretold by Christ himself. He knew that he would be crucified. Matthew 20, 19. Did I give that one to somebody? Matthew 20, verse 19. Somebody take it for me. Did I? I think I meant Matthew 20, 19. Sorry about that. Yes, sir. Okay, so Jesus foretold it. John 3, verse 14. Okay, John 8, 28. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am the one I claim to be, and that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. And then John 12, 32 through 33. Okay, so over and over, Jesus predicts it, that he's going to die, and says specifically he's going to be resurrected on the third day. Remember, he'll, sometimes he'll veil it in kind of metaphorical language, like when he talks about the temple, and the temple you know, will be destroyed and rebuilt in three days, and he's talking about his death and resurrection as well. So, how did he know that? I mean, how would he have predicted that. Now, what they'll say is that, well, the disciples knew what he was talking about, too, so they faked it. Well, what? I'm sorry, I thought I heard somebody. 
When Jesus made it clear that his death would be by crucifixion, the Jews failed repeatedly to kill him by other means. Now, this is an interesting evidence because they wanted to kill him several times and they just couldn't do it. The only way that they were able to achieve it is because he says, no man takes my life from me, but I give it up. He died in exactly the manner that he predicted and they could not foil that prediction. Luke chapter 4, 28 through 30. Okay, I've always loved this story. They go to throw him off the cliff. Jesus walks right through the crowd. I don't know if that was miraculous or if that was the power of presence. I don't know. But Jesus walked right through the crowd. It was his hometown. A prophet's not without honor except in his own country. You know, I remember Seth told me one time, he said, Dad, maybe I'll get to preach at Waterford someday. I said... Yeah, probably not, <laughs> because a prophet's not without honor, save in his own country, you know, and when people knew you as a kid, it's kind of hard to respect you as a, as a spokesman, right? And so it's, that's, that's what Jesus had. I mean, he had gotten up and he had read from the scroll in the synagogue, because he was kind of a big deal at home, right? He was, a, I mean, he was like a celebrity. He was like... I don't know, who are some celebrities who come from around here? I live right next to Adams High School. This is in Rochester, and Madonna graduated from there. Well, I don't know that that's very proud. <laughs> Lenora, Lenora actually said, this is funny. She's not here, so I'll tease her. She said, yeah, Madonna's from here. They named that college after her, close by. <laughs> no, that college is not about creating material, girls. That's... But, you know, in the church, we don't use the term Madonna like they do in Catholicism. But, but um, yeah, she graduated from there. Um, Bob Seger, somebody said, um, Kid Rock, you know, all these things. It's kind of a big deal when you go home. I mean, where I'm moving to, they've got a pretty famous person that was from there. And everything in Tupelo, Mississippi is Elvis something, right? I mean, Elvis something or another, because that was like the most famous person ever to come out of that city. So it's a big deal. Well, Jesus had already made a name for himself as a pretty big-time rabbi, right? I mean, he's got thousands of people following him. So he comes home, and they're all excited. Yeah, you get up and read, in the, read but what he reads and makes application, they don't like. Because he goes beyond being a rabbi. It goes to being the Messiah. And these are the people who changed his diaper. These are the people who taught his little classes in the synagogue. These are the people who taught him in school. These are the people who had to break up little scuffles between him and their kids in the yard, you know? These are the people who think he's acting a little big for his britches. I know who you are. I helped raise you. And they go, and they're so upset about it, they're going to throw him off a cliff. He just walks right through them. You think that was miraculous, or do you think it was just the power of his presence? I don't know. I kind of 
I don't know, so I can't make an argument one way or the other, but just in my mind, I think it was probably the power of his presence. I think Jesus, they take him out there and he's smiling, he's like, you know, and I don't know if he stared him down or whatever, but they weren't about to throw him off that cliff. That couldn't happen. If they had, he wouldn't have fallen. He can walk on water. Can he walk on air? <clears throat> sure he can. So, you see, they tried to kill him. But that wasn't the death he had prescribed. That wasn't the death that God had decided for him. Okay? Now we have uh, John 5.18. Making himself equal with God. They knew exactly what he was claiming to be. Exactly. And they wanted to kill him for it. And then we have John 7, verse 1, if you would. Yeah. So he was in Galilee. He knew that they were... I mean, if he steps into Judea, they're going to try to kill him. How about verse 25, chapter 7, verse 25? Then said some of them of Jerusalem, Is not this he whom they seek to kill? Whom they seek to kill. It was even known that they were trying to kill him. John chapter 10, verse 31. took up stones again to stone him. And then last one, chapter 11, verse 8. John 11, verse 8. His disciples say unto him, Master, the Jews of late sought to stone thee, and goest thou thither again? Okay. So, repeatedly, and we could have brought up more, they wanted to kill him. And they wanted to stone him, throw him off a cliff, stab him, I don't know, beat him to death. But none of that was going to happen. Why? Because Jesus chose how Jesus died. God doesn't die unless God chooses to die. And he chooses the time. He chooses the place. He chooses the means. So all these predictions go to the evidence of his, re- of his crucifixion and then, of course, his resurrection. So what a grand occurrence that both the type of death And the empty tomb came about just as Jesus had predicted. Although Jews made every effort to keep the prophecies from being fulfilled, how would it be possible if he were only a mere man? I mean, no other instance in history has someone accomplish something like this, where others are trying to kill him, they're trying to find, they have all the power, I mean, in normal circumstances, if the people that are, I mean, let let me just give you a hint. If the National Security Administration and the FBI and the CIA want to kill any of us, it's probably going to happen, right? Why? They got the power. They can do that. The Sanhedrin had the power. They could make it happen. In fact, there's one instance, remember, they send the, 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 the guards to go hear him, I mean, to go get him, and what happens? The guards come back without him. And the priest said, what, what, where is he? What happened? They said, well, 
We never heard anybody speak like this guy speaks. Remember that? Yeah. This is unique in all of human history. And it demonstrates his power. And it demonstrates evidence of his death and his resurrection that he foretold. So the event was foretold early in Jesus' ministry, not late. Look at, uh, who'll take John? I got a few more to hand out here. John 2, 13 through 22. Someone? Okay, John 2, 13 through 22. And then if you don't mind, brother, uh, Matthew 27, 62 through 66. Matthew 27, 62 through 66, when we get there in just a moment. Okay, so the event was foretold early in Christ's ministry. Some have alluded that Christ saw the direction of the stream of events, and that is why he could predict his death and supposed resurrection. Okay? In other words, they say, well, Jesus, he was just very intuitive. And he kind of knew they were probably going to crucify him. So he made up this idea that he would be crucified. And then, you know, there was a plan for his disciples to steal the body. And he'd say he's resurrected. What possible, possible prediction could anybody have made that they would be crucified as a Jew? Was that just an everyday occurrence? They're just crucifying people. No. No, the Romans reserved crucifixion for certain circumstances and certain crimes. And it was a Roman penalty, not a Jewish penalty. And they were hesitant to do it. You know how we know they were hesitant to do it? Because Pilate didn't want to do it, right? It wasn't just, just, oh man, he stole a loaf of bread. Crucify him. No, no, no. These two guys on the cross with Jesus, they're bad guys. They're bad guys. It was not just a common everyday. In fact, beheading was a much more common form of for, uh, you know, extreme punishment in that time, capital punishment. And then, of course, there were beatings and there were stoning was the most common. If he was going to just kind of guess how they were going to kill him, he would never have said crucified. He would have said stone. That's how most people were killed by the Jews. In fact, that's how the old law prescribed people to be killed by the Jews. That would be terrible, wouldn't it? Have you ever thought about what that would be? To be stoned? I mean, I've been hit by a baseball. I spent four days in the hospital in eighth grade because I wasn't paying attention on third base and a big kid hit a line drive into my spleen. Boom. I mean, that's just one baseball, but stones, that would just be terrible. Well, Jesus... That would have been the thing to predict. He didn't predict that. What a, this is a, a kind of an absurd stretch that people make. Okay, so how could that be when he pointed to the resurrection at his first temple cleansing in the beginning of his ministry? You see, they're supposing that he kind of sensed how things were going as it went along, and he pieced it together. That's how this argument they make goes. But look at John 2, 13 through 22. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made 
First Passover, very beginning of his ministry, he says he's going to be resurrected. Now, how could he have just pieced it together at the very beginning of his ministry? It's not reasonable. It's not reasonable. Okay, so they, the prophecy became common knowledge. That's um, the third thing that we see as, a, as a evidence here. The prophecy became common knowledge. The common man was so familiar with Christ's claim and its proof of Messiahship that the Jewish leaders took every step to prevent it. I mean, they knew that this, that this would solidify his support. They knew the people knew of the prophecy and intended to use the still dead body on the fourth day to prove that Yeshua of Nazareth was forever a fraud. Because... You know, so he's resurrected. That impacts a few people. No, no, no. All those thousands and thousands and thousands of Jews who understood. He made the claim over and over and over. It was understood. I am the son of God. I will die and I will be resurrected and on the third day. So if they still have the body on the fourth day, what does that do? That totally debunks that claim forever with all those folks who heard it. Okay. One glitch, of course, nobody. Matthew 27, 62 through 66. Didn't I give that to somebody? Yes, please. See, they were afraid of this prophecy because they knew about it. Everybody knew about it. I mean, it's, it's a big deal. All they've got to do is stop that from happening, and they've debunked his, his claim forever. But they knew, so it was a widespread claim. Now, the fourth thing we're going to look at in regard to this first day of the week is Christianity and the first day of the week. And... Uh, I have a few, just a few scriptures. How much time we got? We got five, six minutes. So um, 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2, he'll take that. Thank you, Courtney. 
John, Acts 20, verse 7. That's number one. Okay, suddenly, even faithful Jews transfer emphasis from the Sabbath to the first day of the week without question. Have you noticed that before? It's interesting to get in this discussion with a Seventh-day Adventist. Um, It's quite intriguing because there is ample evidence that the transition immediately following the resurrection of Jesus when the church is established 40 days later on the day of Pentecost, from that point forward, the first day of the week becomes the special day of worship. And we have this implication as you gather together on the first day of the week. We have their example, but there's not a lot of you must, the first day of the week must be the day you, because it's almost as if there's, it's so widely accepted, they don't even have to do that. It's just not an issue. Because we see it, and in the early church fathers, the anti-Nicene fathers and all the letters of the time, the first day of the week, the first day of the week, the first day of the week, it is the day of resurrection. It is the day of victory. It's the day that Jesus came forth and conquered death. And so the church accepted that in mass, universally. Now, I believe that some Jews still followed the Sabbath day as well. I think they did. You know, when you read about in Romans 14 and 15 that some honor one day above another and this, that, or the other. So would that be wrong necessarily for a person to uh, take and not work on Saturday? Well, I've known a lot of people who did that, right? Not because it was a religious thing. They just wanted a day off, right? But if somebody were to honor that, well, if you came out of Judaism, just like it wouldn't have been necessarily wrong to still keep those feasts, those were your traditions of your heritage and all of these things. But all those Christians who still may have been honoring the, the feast days and the Passover and, and the Sabbath day, they still didn't question that Sunday, the first day of the week, in mass they accepted it, that that was the day of worship because that's the day of victory. So the church practiced this as a whole. On the first day of the week, the church was established. We're not going to read it because it's the entire chapter of Acts chapter 2, but that's the day that it was established, on the first day of the week. So not only is the day we worship the day that Jesus was resurrected, it is also the day that the very first of all Christians were made and that the church was born on the first day of the week. The first day has become very special to Christians by the time Paul penned his first Corinthian letter, 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2. On the first day of every week, because they were already gathering on the first day of every week. Acts 20, verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. Okay. So they gathered together on the first day of the week to break bread. And that bread, of course, there is, of course, a reference to the Lord's Supper. And Paul preached 
You know, it's funny because we're all about pattern, but the pattern in Scripture is you preach till midnight. <laughs> Nobody wants to listen to that pattern. I told that to a brother one time, and he said, yeah, but what the text doesn't say is he started preaching at 1140. I said, okay. Hard to argue with that. A.M. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. All right. So the question, what significant event happened to produce such an emphasis? Why would the first day of the week be so important to the early church? Well, because the first day of the week is important to everything we are. It's the day of victory. It's the day of hope. It's the day that our Savior showed us that he lives and he conquered death. All right, we'll get to some of the more evidence stuff next week. Thank you for your attention.